managers are appointed, but leaders are elected, right? That you choose the person you want to follow. You know, you're told who your manager is, but in terms of the people you want to emulate and admire, that's, that's all choice. Welcome to Create New Features, a show about thought-provoking ideas and practices you can use to create and shape your future in life and in business. Join Avi Shahar, author and innovation strategy consultant, as he shares his proven strategies that have helped clients create breakthrough results. Aviv has guided executives at Fortune 100 companies, and now he wants to help you. Welcome to Create New Futures, where we develop conversations with successful leaders and entrepreneurs to explore how you can create new futures for you and for your organization. This is Aviv, and today I am speaking with Tom Chiarella. Tom is the CEO of Resonance AI. He has had a lifelong passion for technology, great product design, and for building innovative businesses. Tom was the co-founder and chief executive of Questra, one of the first large-scale Internet of Things companies. He has since been involved with eight venture-backed startups as investor, advisor, and or board member. Before that, he led projects at companies like General Electric and Xerox. Tom, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Thank you very much. What did I miss there in uh, my introduction? I think uh, that was quite good. You know, I, I love technology. Started as a young person uh, with all things science and technology, and and my career has reflected that. So, well, so I always like to ask at the front end of the conversation of all the things that you do at work right now. What do you enjoy? most? What is it that you find most energizing? I would say, you know, the very first thing is delighting customers. And maybe that sounds a bit cliche, but um, it's very satisfying, very rewarding when, especially in the technology business, you deliver some technology to a customer and the feedback is, you know, this is very cool. This, This is beyond cool. And we can see this as being an important part of our business. So, you know, getting that that satisfaction from customers is is probably the single most enjoyable thing. But right up there as well is working with the team, you know, collaboration, being part of a team, working together to create something new that hasn't been created before, you know, pushing barriers and boundaries, that that's very rewarding. You know, and as I mentioned, uh, you know, started by my as a young person, all things science and technology. So just intellectual development and the stimulation and intellectual curiosity on all things technology. I love learning things, whether it's in business and leadership or technology as well. So I would say those three things, delighting customers, collaborating with the team and and developing my own curious or intellectual curiosity about technology. This idea of delighting customers, was that something that you naturally found earlier in life, or was that a learned behavior or some combination of both? I would probably have to say it's a combination of both. Uh, You know, grew up uh, very, very modest uh, immigrant parents and had a paper route. So back in the day when young men and and women delivered papers door to door, 
it was always important to me that uh, uh, customers, uh, even in that modest business, were happy. So I grew up outside of Buffalo, New York. We have lots of snow. I won more than a few awards for delivering all my papers, even in the midst of, of blizzards and, and snowstorms. And then uh, moving into, into corporate America after graduating from college, I have a degree in computer engineering, uh, was the same type of thing, uh, working on things where I saw the customer response to you know, giving them something beyond what their expectation was. And, and I think instead of learned behavior, it's maybe it's like a, a feedback loop. You do something, you get positive response to it, makes you feel good. So you want to go do more of it. So, Well, I'm still interested to just um, further ask you about this. What do you trace this temperament or awareness or sensibility even earlier in life? Because it, it is always curious when you find somebody that for them, yeah, that's a natural thing to make other people, especially customers, delighted with your service. You could say this is naturally arising in, in every person, but I don't know that that would be a, a true fact. I don't think it is a naturally, I think it is naturally arising in some people. And maybe just as, you know, some people are very good in, in sales or some people are, you know, very good dealing with numbers. I think there is a natural proclivity for some people, you know, to try and make the people around them happy uh, and delight them. So I, I think I do have some of that. Uh, I'm not sure if it was innate or I learned it from people around me as a young person. Maybe I did. I mean, growing up uh, in an Italian family, you know, my parents and, and aunts and uncles and, and grandparents uh, delighted family members with food. Right, that was their way of making the people around them happy with great foods. And so maybe there's some you trace some of that back to that early upbringing. I don't know, but uh, yeah, yeah, I very nice. Had probably same thing in your background as well. Very uh, nice. Yeah. How would you describe the problem that the resonance AI is trying to solve? What is it that you are trying to change, transform, and solve? I mean, the, at the simplest level, we're trying to decode and understand what makes people like or dislike video, right? What, why do you like certain TV shows and not others? Why do certain people like a certain movie, but others don't find it interesting? Why do some TV shows like, like The Office, you know, 10 years, 12 years after it went off the air, it's still in syndication and other shows don't even make it a season. So what we're trying to do is decode the link between audience and content. Yeah. So hence the name of the company, what resonates. And we believe our fundamental thesis is, you know, what you watch and how you watch, right? Do you binge? Do you snack? Is a very good proxy for your tastes and preferences, likes, dislikes, uh, purchase ambitions, lifestyle. Uh, you know, things that companies would find very useful to help create and tailor products uh, for different segments, create content. You know, as we move to a cookie-less future, we believe we're very excited that our data, again, decoding the link between content, video in particular, which is, which is everything, right? TikTok and Snap and YouTube are, are the dominant web properties these days they all revolve around video so decoding the link again between 
audience and content. Uh, if, if we can crack that, we, we think there's a huge opportunity for the data that we're, we're creating. So how are you approaching this science? I mean, it, I've worked with um, and helped uh, teams in, in companies like Procter & Gamble and like General Mills. These are the, the old companies that developed and, and others that developed the science of, of unearthing consumers' insight and right. getting to, to understand deeply what delights consumers in those categories. You right. are transitioning to a whole other space. What is it that, what is the science that's behind this inquiry and, and how are you approaching this uh, decoding conundrum? So our company, we have basically three AI platforms. One is what we call audience intelligence. And we aggregate viewing behavior for several million households on a second by second basis. So you can imagine yourself say watching TV, and it doesn't matter if it's streaming or traditional TV, you have the remote in your hand and you're pressing pause, rewind, replay, channel up, channel down, bring up the guide. So we have that data for several million households and we stitch that together to try and determine what each household is watching and the mode that they're watching. You know, in the traditional ratings universe that many of us may, may have some background in, uh, it's simply counting how many people are watching at any given time. We're trying to decode the mode of watching. We have a second AI engine we call content intelligence. Literally video content goes in and the AI extracts the creative essence. So who's on the screen? What are the stories? What are the moods and emotions? You know, that part is very, very difficult to do, right? Having AI watch TV, for the lack of a better word, with human-like perception, right? Something is supposed to be funny, for example. And then we have what we call the resonance AI, which takes the content intelligence and juxtaposes it with the audience intelligence to determine what people like and don't like. And we can do that on you know, any variety of dimensions, whether it's certain demographics, time of day, region of the country. You know, it's interesting, for example, you know, I'll give you some uh, quick example, but one of the things our AI decodes is what we call speaker prestige, how the use of proper English, accent, things along those lines. And for certain audiences, prestige, say a fine London speaker, resonates very highly. And for other audiences, it resonates very negatively, which when you think about it, there's a reason all the bad guys in diehard movies are fine speaking Europeans, because it resonates distrust in certain audiences. And so those are some of the findings that that's just a sort of a, you know, a very topical, but that's what we hope to be able to provide to our customers, that level of insight whether they are in the content business, they create content as their product, or they use content like an advertiser to, to inform consumers or motivate consumers to, to buy their product or service or, or whatever it is they're trying to motivate consumers to do. So who are the customers for that kind of a solution? So right now, our main customer base is content creators. So studios, broadcasters, networks, cable stations. And it might sound a bit boring, but within that, our, our current focus is news programs. There are you know, over a thousand stations 
that create five hours of news every day, 365 days a year. And, and it's all ABOD, as we call it, advertising-based video business model. So getting that right relates to literally billions of dollars of ad revenue. What do you say if somebody says, well, the shows that will get the highest ratings are where people truly argue with each other to the point that even scream at each other, I don't need a sophisticated AI platform to tell you that. Well, I think there's some of that, uh, but even within that, so if you're referring to maybe daytime television where there's arguments and things like that, but even within that, like at what point does it become you exceed the tipping point and too much screaming and arguing loses audience, right? Or is it the host? Is it the setting? Is it the topics, right? Is it the on-screen talent? You know, is it the format? So, you know, in video content, there are literally, you know, millions of attributes and finding the right set of attributes is something that just can't be done with A-B testing, right? You need something much more sophisticated. So while we haven't done daytime television, I would say that the concept is the same. You know, decode the content, determine the tastes and preferences, likes, dislikes of the audience, amplify the things with, to a certain limit that drive audience and uh, reduce the things that, uh, that reduce audience. And it could even be simple things, the number and timing and duration of commercial breaks, for example. You know, so we call them power scores. So we measure content with three dimensions. We call it drawing power. Does it bring new people in? Staying power does, or holding power, does it keep people watching? And staying power, do people watch again and again? So, mm. you know, so daytime television, maybe some of it has good drawing power. People flipping through the channel, see something, there's argument conflict. It, probably be hard not to watch that for a little while to see what's going on, but do they finish the show and do they turn it, tune in again tomorrow? And so those are the, some of the questions that we try to help our customers answer. Why are you working on this problem and not um, your friends at Google that, that run YouTube, for example? Yeah, so I think uh, I wouldn't be surprised if Google is working on things like that. And Google in general is re-engineering all of search to be video first and being able to search into video. So you mentioned YouTube. If you search for something on YouTube, even today, you just better hope either the title as created by the publisher or maybe some of the comments and, and user-generated data about it have the keywords that you're looking for. And even when you find something, maybe it's like how to change a tire on a car, you then still have to scroll through the video yourself to find the portion of interest. So I think there's a lot of companies, including Google, that look at video and say, we need to make it more searchable, discoverable. I think Google's focused on not necessarily what we are, which is the resonance of, of video, but they're doing some interesting things. You know, they talk about extracting data from the video because people have questions. They'll watch something and say, well, I want to buy that or I want to know more about that or I want to go there or I want to do that. And so I think those are some of the things that we're, they're working on. It's a, it's a different take than what we're working on. But in general, lots of companies working on, you know, applying AI to process this uh, this giant data set called, called video, you know, 
Like uh, I was working with a customer once and I took the script of, I think it was a Star Wars movie. It was about 200 K bytes in size. The movie itself was four gigabytes in size, right? So there's just that much more content in video versus versus the text equivalent. So I think this is- What are, in terms of just if the sheer development and evolution of the AI capacity, what are some of the difficult, complex functionalities or challenges that AI is not quite yet solving for you today, but should be able to solve for you in a year or two from now? You know, that's a really interesting question. And the more we work on what we're doing here at Resonance, especially on video, AI for video, the more I appreciate, you know, the, the amazing sophistication of the human brain. So for example, let's take character recognition, recognizing faces, especially in, in dramatic content. We have things like aging and makeup, for example. So if you watch the movie, The Irishman, for example, you see the same character in six decades of aging from a young man to an old man. The human brain, when we watch that, we know it's the same person. It's very difficult for AI to realize it's the same person. Uh, same thing when you deal with low lighting or, you know, facial hair, makeup, you know, we see that and we say, oh, yeah, that's that person, right? Uh, AI is a long way to go to deal with those types of things. Simple things, for example, maybe someone is staring at the camera, but then they turn around and walk away. AI, if you're looking at the back of someone's head, you don't know it's that person, but the human brain knows, right? We just saw that person turn around and walk away. We're sort of tracking and we know who that is, even if they're way in the distance on the screen because they were in the foreground and now they're in the background. You know, what we call speaker diarization, so if you have multiple people speaking, even if there's no video, the human brain says, oh, there's five people in that conversation. We can uh, associate different voices. AI isn't there yet to be able to do that. So that the deeper you go into AI, I hear, the greater your awe or reverence or appreciation of the human brain and its capacity. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really amazing. You know, part of video is sound and analyzing sound is very, very difficult. So imagine you're in a crowded room at a party. You might be speaking to someone, but you can tune your hearing to say eavesdrop on the conversation next to you. Even all the background noise, you know, getting AI to do that type of thing, like separate multiple conversations going on in one audio stream. It's almost impossible right now. Would the following statement be correct then just processing what you offered there that AI brings extraordinary capacity to repeatable pattern recognition, but where the human mind uses intuition, those lips are not yet processable by AI. Am I describing that correctly? I would say that exactly. Yes. Yeah. There are associations and inferences that the human brain can do so quickly to teach AI to do some of those things, especially sound and vision is we're in our infancy right now. So you're saying we are in our infancy that this, would it be correct to say then it's the velocity, the sheer velocity and volume of computing power that you're utilizing in AI, all those other capacities 
that we associate with human life, we are not coming anytime close to this. That, or you are inferring that in some other places, in some other laboratories, the, there is already potentially these, these frontiers are being explored. I would be shocked if there aren't other laboratories, companies, universities studying these things. And, you know, with the explosion of computational power and storage, network speed, you know, we're getting to the point where the the physical side of computing is is getting to the point where we can we can do these things. I think again the software, the machine learning, where I I think we have a quite a ways to go to really decode something like video, which just there are just so many things that collectively we add up in our brains to determine, you know, whether we like it or we don't like it. And uh, so I think it'll be a long time before a computer writes a great novel, paints a great picture, you know, creates a, a television show. I mentioned The Office before. Every now and then, I'll if it's on TV, I'll, I'll watch a little bit. And it just it's such a twisted show, right? Who could have imagined such a thing, right? And uh, you know, but that's the amazing part of the human. The human condition, the human spirit, you know, to imagine things that I just can't imagine a computer doing anytime soon. So the the solution, the service that you offer content producers is merely the the output of the, the, the resonance profile, or do you translate and convert that to pragmatic recommendations of what they should and shouldn't do? We don't do that. We provide the data and then we work with partners and consultants that specialize in, in doing that type of recommendation, whether it's, you know, what lineup to have, like take somebody like Netflix, you know, they've been doing more with, you know, sports related dramas, for example, or documentaries. I'm a big Formula One fan and one of their their big shows these days is called Drive to Survive, which is really amazing. It's like the back look inside the life of Formula One. And uh, so, you know, they companies like Netflix could take our data and say, oh, we serve these audiences, but there are new audiences. And if we had programming that looked like this, right, we, we could activate a new segment in our viewer base that we don't have right now. Or you know, what content to license, what content to make, whether to, we call it series maintenance to renew for the next season, or, you know, it's run its course, you know, it's creative, as I mentioned before, is, is a factor of inspiration. I don't see computers anytime soon having human level of inspiration, but we can inform inspiration. And that's one of our big applications, being able to guide the creative team. So they may have great concepts, but how to present it at I'll give you an example you know the human audience especially if you want to grow audience if you have too many characters coming and going it's hard for new audience to come on board mm. you know one of the things that we're doing now is analyzing content for diversity whether it's gender lifestyle lgbtq status ethnicity you know are the characters on screen representative of, of our population? The premise being, essentially, we like to see people like ourselves on screen so we can empathize and resonate yes. with them. 
and feel the, the characters, even if they're on screen and they look like us, they're presented in, in roles we find, you know, beneficial or inspirational. I'll, I'll give you a quick example. We didn't invent it, but we've got some AI that automates what's called the Bechtel test. And three simple tests. Are there more than two female lead characters, let's say in a TV show? If so, do those two female characters appear on screen without men? And if they're on screen without men, are they talking about something other than men? And about 80% of all TV shows fail one or more of those three simple tests. You know, so yeah, it's, it's, I'm, you know, I have two daughters. So when I, you know, see and hear those things, it's like, okay, you know, clearly there still is a bias in the creation of content that's male centric. It's hard to come away with that conclusion when you look at this type of data. So, so those are some of the things that we do as well. You know, we work with a big studio and they created a series of TV shows that were for women with women lead characters. And so we ran some of our AI and even though it was by women, for women with women led characters, women had less than 50% of the screen time and less than 40% of the spoken words. Wow. Right. So, <laughs> you know, still some ways to go to, if you want to create something that's truly, you know, meets that goal of, of, of being women led and, uh, and focus on, on what women care about. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so let's travel back in time just a little. You, you spoke earlier about the, the paper route. Yeah. Take me on the arc from there to your early professional experience. Right. General electric and, and Xerox, some, some of those large companies, how do you go there? And, and then the, the journey that led you to, um, begin your own company. Take me through that arc, please. Sure. Well, again, grew up very modestly. So paper route was the only way to have any kind of pocket money, right? Uh, whether it's to, to get pizza with friends or have a bicycle or anything like that. And so as, as someone who, who had a paper route back at that time, right? Not only did I deliver papers, but I collected money from my customers. And so dealt with a lot of coins. So I became a little bit of a coin collector. As you might know, coins prior to 1965 were all silver. Coins after 1965 didn't have any silver content at all. So I had a modest collection of pre-1965 coins. Nothing, you know, collector value was virtually zero. But at that time when I was maybe 14, 15, the price of silver a group in Texas, the Hunt brothers, tried to corner the silver market and it went from $8 to $50 per ounce. And I realized my coin collection, which had no collector value or minimal collector value, had considerable precious metal value now. So I didn't know it was called arbitraging, but I went to all my friends that you know I was in high school with that were coin collectors like myself or even coin shops before they figured it out. And you know, you'd look up in the book and say, yeah, this quarter is worth 28 cents and I would pay 28 cents for it. I wouldn't argue about the condition. And then I would go to the silver market. And at that time they were giving me about 10 times face value. So what I paid 28 cents for was worth $2 and 50 cents. Unfortunately, the price of silver didn't stay up there. And no, people- it was for a very short time. So yeah, the question is, did you manage to catch that window? I did. I, it was a great summer for me. So, you know, I had car and stereo equipment and all that kind of stuff. And <laughs> 
you know, so to a certain degree, like unfulfilled desire as a young person is a good thing. And then you add some, you know, a little bit of innovation and hustle on top of that. And uh, so that's what got me, I would say my first case of business was, okay, you know, thinking about something a little bit differently. And, and again, I knew other people would figure out what, what I was doing. They would do the same thing, right? That there's two separate markets, collector market, precious metals market. They're paying a lot more. So I would go to things like flea markets and those types of things. Anyone who was selling coins as fast as I could buy them. And then the very next day, go to the the people who are who are buying them for precious metals value. So very nice early entrepreneurial experience. Right. And so, how do you go from there to uh, a professional experience in a what, couple of the most admired companies in the world at that time? Yeah. So you know, actually made enough during that period of time to 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 help subsidize my college education. So got a degree in computer engineering. Again, at that point in time, you know, home computers weren't that common at all. So I was one of the first, certainly a young teenager to have a home computer. So I was just enthralled by all things computer. So got a degree in computer engineering. When I got out of school, went to work for GE Aerospace, which was just a fantastic job. I, the GE was an amazing company and uh, got to play with all the biggest toys. You know, like, you know, we were creating computers for aerospace applications. So like, Money was no object, right? It, performance was everything. And so I learned a lot, had some great mentors. I loved my time at GE, but then they sold our division and I didn't want to go into defense. So our division ended up as part of what is now Lockheed and I didn't want to go into defense. And uh, so went to work for Xerox when, you know, it was one of the coolest companies ever, as you might know. Pretty much everything we have today in computing originated somewhere inside Xerox. The mm-hmm. mouse, the GUI, Ethernet. Before it was called PostScript and Adobe, it was called Impress. It, you know, PostScript was a Xerox product, was a Xerox technology. So I was part of a, an application called Sixth Sense, which was Internet of Things for field service automation. And uh, at that point in time, Xerox had something like 50 million pieces of office equipment, 22,000 people in vans driving around to break big service. You know, some of the high-end stuff that Xerox made that went into banks and, you know, commercial printing. You know, if the equipment was down, it cost a tremendous amount of money to the owner-operator, right? They couldn't make money in the business that they're set up to do with print. So I got the idea of Xerox needs that. Everybody who makes equipment where the cost of service is high and the cost of downtime is high would, would have the same need. And uh, again, computer engineering background, uh, did a lot of super high performance embedded systems when I was at GE. Uh, so that's where Questra, the company you mentioned in the intro, was formed. Just before we we make this transition, you mentioned mentors. Yeah. I'm always interested in that period to discover how thoughtful, how strategic or intuitive you were about developing your career. And, and often that is very much shaped by the kind of mentors that you found or that found you. What were your ways in that space? Who did you find as, as mentors? You know, it's interesting. I don't know if I even thought about it as a mentor per se, 
back then, you know, it was right out of college, early 20s. I just looked at it as like people I admired. And I said to myself, I want to be like that person, right? I want to, you know, approach work. So, you know, one of the, the first mentors, you know, and I can name them, but I probably can all name the, the small handful of teachers and, and people we work with for our entire lives. So the first one was a guy named Steve. And one was just so good with working with everybody. People admired Steve. And, and then he was just able to get things done. I, I'll never forget Steve. I'll be talking to Steve and he could program while staring at you and having a conversation. And it's just like, wow, I want to be like that, right? You know, that's amazing. But, uh, and then when I got to GE, that's when I was a student engineer at a company called Harris Corporation. But then when I got to, to GE, uh, a couple of the, the people I work with, a guy named Craig, he was just probably the best computer designer I'd ever met. I mean, just the level of innovation. And, and he was a young person, but running a big team. And then there was sort of the old sage, maybe not old, old, but uh, had been there for a while. His name was Jim. Um, Jim was just so measured and calm. You know, there could be like a huge, you know, catastrophe in the making. And Jim just had, you know, tons of, of quiet confidence that we'll just work through it. We'll fix it. You know, let's keep our heads on us type of thing. And uh, so I don't know, again, I thought about it as mentors as much as people I admired. And then I went to, you know, again and again and again during the workday to either ask questions or, you know, interact with. So, well, that this is a fascinating element in a professional career. What, what you described there as the, the three or four or five people awesome. that profoundly shape who you are becoming and who right. you become uh, through your career because they were there as role models. You looked at them. You said, I want to be like them. I'm going to emulate their behavior. And sometimes you didn't even know necessarily the full background or reason as to why they were able to act the way they acted. But it's simply there was there is a charisma. There was a charisma and attraction about how they got things done and how they influenced the people around them. Right. And that becomes a formative influence into who you are becoming as a professional. Right. Exactly right. And, uh, you know, I've heard the saying, perhaps you have as well, you know, managers are appointed, but leaders are elected, right? That you choose the person you want to follow. You know, you're told who your manager is, but in terms of the people you want to emulate and admire, that's, that's all choice. You know, and uh, so I, the, the people that, you know, like Steve and Jim and others that really had huge impacts early days, you know, and, and not to, to sidetrack too much, but, you know, I think about in the COVID era, I think we, lose, we lost that in the last year and a half. If you're a new worker out of school, you haven't had the opportunity to watch people in meetings and interact in in, you know, informal ways around the office. You know, if I had to do everything via Zoom back when I was first out of college, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to, you know, build the rapport that I did with people like Craig and Jim and others. So, so hopefully uh, some of the work environment comes back because I think especially the younger people need that. Yes. Yes. So then what is the arc from there to co-founding your own company 
And at what point do you get this idea that is it about a product or the solution you're building or the because some people they just know from earlier on in life that they are not going to work for other people they're going to work for themselves they're going to have their own company what was the the journey for you I think the journey for me was again uh, the, the the initial impetus was GE selling off part of aerospace into a defense conglomerate and deciding you know that wasn't the career arc that I wanted to go into and there was a lot of you know the typical downsizing and uncertainty of like what's going to happen through all of this and and I had three co-workers that we were we were sort of the four musketeers we were the ones working late we all had the same ambitions and all out of school about the same time so I forgot which one of it was came to us and said hey I got a friend who as at Xerox they're looking for because right at that time Xerox was going from a photographic process in all of their copiers to digital before that it was literally like a chemistry set on the inside right developing agents and whatnot and then when they switched to digital or they were about to switch to digital it was basically a scanner and laser printer smashed together with software and uh, but that had never been done they you know moving that much data at that point in time you know scan a page at high resolution and and all of that hadn't been done before so they needed some really serious computer engineers and that's was our, the original idea was okay let's just go help them engineer embedded controllers for for this new era of products that we're creating network connected digital multifunction and and then getting involved there like I I mentioned saw the internet of things opportunity and then realized you know what started out really is sort of like a consulting project hey look there's a there's actually a software company here and, um, and that's where where cluster was born we all had sort of the same background you know grew up very modestly immigrant parents you know hard work you know growing up my parents said hey Tom you could be anything you want as long as it's a lawyer doctor engineer right <laughs> you know and uh, then my, my three co-founders all the same background so hard work you know there's no substitute for that so and what were some of the the key lessons from the experience at questra well I guess you know this huge ledger of them I think on the you know just the On the super positive side right you know find the right people have the right shared vision have the right shared values there's almost nothing you can't do you know and we had a lot of fun along the way I would say we got to the point we're about maybe a 3035 million dollar company at that point in time and we decided we're going to bring in some venture capital uh, that was a bit of a wake-up experience for me uh, because you know the At least the people we worked with came in with sort of like the universal game plan and uh, probably it didn't fit with what we were doing how we were doing it and we lost some of the the things that made it fun and exciting you know and maybe that is inevitable you know a business has to become a business at some point in time and you know you can grow faster you can make more money but uh, and then you sold the company at that point or So at that point in time it was probably 10 years in so uh, I transitioned to to a 
like a, a management consultant and, and advisor. And then a, a couple of years after that, we merged with our biggest competitor. And then that conglomerate was sold to a publicly traded company in a very, very good transaction. So, I mean, and a lot of the software and technology, what we call smart service still lives on and still used by, you know, this is gosh, 30 years now, 25 years. Uh, you know, so we created something that, uh, had lasting value. I mean, we didn't know to call it Internet of Things back in the early 90s. We called it A to, A to B. Instead of B to B, we were A to B, appliance to business or asset to business. So we helped create a category that's one of the biggest categories today. Many of the people that came to us right out of college, you know, have gone on to do amazing things. Uh, a couple of People started their own company and had exits in the in the hundreds of millions of dollars. You know, one person in particular, his name's Rajiv, did a startup after leaving Questra. I think he did all of like one Steve round and then had his exit a year later to Cisco. So, you know, and uh, and another our my CTO at the time, his name was John, did uh, created another IoT company called ThingWorks, and they had a huge exit. So you know, I sort of look at us as we're, we're part of the co-creators of the space back before it was a space. So the insight there is if you can be early enough to a major trend, the opportunities are astronomical. Absolutely. You know, switching to, to resonance, you know, we've been at this like four years now, five years, and maybe I think we were a little bit too early. Right. So I think we all know what's going to happen in tech. Question is, when will it happen? Right. When will it hit the tipping point? Well, lots of companies have been too early. Lots of companies have been too late. It's hard to be just right. And I think yeah. with, uh, with Questro, we were just right. You know, the industry, you know, internet, broadband internet was becoming ubiquitous. It was really just when cloud was starting. You know, so the network infrastructure and, and that type of infrastructure was there. Enough products like a Xerox machine or medical instruments had enough onboard processor and memory to connect to the internet and have things like onboarded onboard web servers and web clients. So, uh, you know, prior to that, they're just, you know, the technology wasn't there, but embedded systems got to the point. Networking got to the point where, where uh, Internet of Things became possible. In terms of the people's side of business and the experience of running a team as a CEO, what are for you the critical, most essential two or three insights from the journey? You know, being a technology person, early days of being one of the co-founders and CEO of Questra, I, I sort of went the the engineer route. Everything had to be detailed and specified and and elaborated. You know, more was better. More detail was better. I think the last five years here at Resonance, I've gone the other way. I, I feel I have to be the great simplifier. And I'll give you an example. Unfortunately, COVID has has interrupted the last couple, but we do an annual beginning of the year launch, lots of companies do, right? Let's work on our plans and have a, a day long or even two days long workshop. And we'll talk about sales and product and team and everything. 
So the last one we did, I think, was in, in January of 2019. And we said, well, let's work on our values and our, our principles. So we had, you know, people were invited to collaborate and we drew up this document. I think it had 14 or 15 principles and values on it. And several months went by and I remember the conversation. Somehow we circled back to, well, that's one of our core values. And I asked my co-founder, name's Random, can you even name more than five of them on the list? I know there's like 15. Can you name five? She couldn't, I couldn't, no one else in the room could. So I realized, okay, we need to go the other way, right? Because if you can't remember them, what good are they, right? If you can't put them into practice. So we shrunk them down to like, what do we care about? At the end of the day, what do we care about? One was we want to delight customers because if we don't have delighted customers, there's no business. Two is we need to be good stewards of our company, the resources investors have given us, the equipment. And three, we need to take care of each other, right? Our teammates. And... And so we, I don't remember the exact words, but it's essentially, you know, we'll take care of the company, we'll take customers, we'll take care of each other. Those are our values now. And it makes life so much more easy. I had one of our engineers, every now and then he'll, he'll get to the point where he's got a bit of, you know, he gets to the point of, of getting frustrated. And in one case, he basically hung up on a whole group of us on a Zoom. This sort of pouted away. So I spoke to him the next day and I said, did you take care of each other when you did that? He said, no, you know, it's very simple, right? Did that meet our goal of taking care of each other? And he said, no, and that was, you know, and you made some changes and apologies and, you know, so without having to like consult, you know, professionalism or these other things, it was just really simple. So I think, you know, being the great simplifier is what I sort of see my job these days. Yeah. Yeah, I smile when you describe this story because this, of course, has been a, a central element of my work over the last couple of decades with teams, the area of articulating the mission, the vision, the purpose, the strategy, and the values. And one of the ideas about values is we, we've often talked about it as VIAs, V-I-A, the values in action, not the values you print on a slide, post on the corporate wall and pray that it'll make a difference, but actually the values that you demonstrate in action every day, and then it becomes part of the behavioral operating system of the company. We we see it every day. And so it, it is so important when you articulate those core values to, when possible, also accompany the language there with observable behavior. So- how do we know what do what is it that we see when we delight customers when we take care of the company and, and when we take care of each other right it is the rich conversation to have with a team because people will then give you in in answers variety of of language proposals and you're interested in the behaviorally observed articulation that right. that is easy to see easy to emulate and therefore we know what we mean by using that language. Right, right, exactly, exactly. I'm interested in the period in between where for several years, you were not in the CEO role, you were a mentor, you were a coach, you were advisor, you were a board member. What are some of the important learnings from those roles where you're not actually the person accountable but hopefully you're holding somebody else accountable. 
to the commitment. Right. I think, you know, as I mentioned... I mean, you obviously made the decision to get back in the arena. So something about it was not sufficient for you. Right, right. Well, I think I always knew I was going to get back into the arena. And, uh, and it didn't take that long. But, uh, you know, in again, I've had the great fortune to, to be involved with seven or eight or nine startups, two of my own, you know, the rest, someone else's. And, and have been a board member or advisor or investor or, or some and some uh, for quite a few of those companies. And especially in like being an advisor or board member, you know, as I mentioned before, as leader, I feel my new job or, or my main thing is to be the great simplifier. And as advisor, it's like being the great sharpener of the debate, right? We could do this or that, right? For anything a company is doing, there's multiple paths forward, there's decisions to make. It could be even as simple as we could, we only have enough to make this feature or that feature. And a lot of times it has to do with things like team or the, the teams already set up to do this. And so what I try to do is sharpen it down to like the fundamental decision that we're making, right? If we build this feature, we're prioritizing a certain customer segment over another customer segment. That's what we're doing, right? Like get down to like, what is it we're actually doing? The, the building this feature or that feature is sort of incidental, right? There's, let's get it down to like, let's sharpen, you know, in business, unlike say driving on the road, it's not a right turn or a left turn. It's a big spectrum, right? I try to get it down, but we can go right or left, right? It's a clear choice and unambiguous and we know i had one mentor that i admired he asked the question what makes something strategic and i was in a group of like 20 other ceos and well if it's more important if it relates to business whatever and i was again with one of my mentors he said it's when you leave something behind you make a choice and you're leaving something behind it's not easily recoverable and so I, that's stuck in my head. And, you know, when you're making decisions, it should be we're choosing this and we're not choosing that or leaving something behind. And, uh, and let's sharpen the debate when we have big decisions to make so we know exactly what we're getting and exactly what we're, we're leaving behind. Very nice. Yeah. Uh, let me um, approach my three closing questions. Okay. With all that you know today, what advice would you give your 25-year-old self? So maybe this is not, you know, broadly representative, uh, maybe more of a personal thing. But, you know, in my 20s or, yeah, 25, being wrong, failing was, for me, like the worst thing. And I realized I would make decisions to avoid failure as opposed to achieving something, right? Maybe to say it differently not failing was better than succeeding. And, and I think once you failed a few times, which we all do, and I've had my share, you realize you learn more from failure than almost anything else. And very rarely is failure like existential, right? You fix it and you go forward, right? You learn, you know, replan, re-strategize, whatever, and you fix it and you move on. And I wish I were less tentative in my early days. Um, 
hamstrung by like, okay, this, if, if, I, if I'm wrong, you know, I don't want to be wrong. So I would, I, I don't know if others would find, find that similar in their situations, but for me, that was, was the big thing. So take the pain, allow yourself to test boundaries, yeah. allow yourself the exploration that will include failure. Yeah. If you were to lose all that you know and keep only two ideas or two capabilities or two practices, what would you keep? You know, I think one of the things that, you know, I, I came out of school, you know, I love to learn every day, right? So I think if I had nothing else but the, the love of learning and desire of learning, I think I would be okay. And I think the other thing, if keep only one other skill or attribute, it's, you know, the ability to relate and empower and engender trust in, in others. You know, very few great companies are built with just one person, right? You know, Bill Gates had, you know, Paul Allen and, you know, you know, for a long time, Larry Allison had uh, Ray Lane, right? And, you know, almost always there's a person that you're with and very rarely is it done all by yourself. So I think, you know, if I could keep learning and I keep bringing people on my team, if you want to call it that, um, I think I'd be okay. That's awesome. Tom, uh, thank you. Very rich uh, exploration. This journey with you today, as we bring this to lending, what parting wisdom do you uh, want to offer to people listening to create new futures? I would say, especially for, for younger people, I started out as an entrepreneur younger. I think, you know, the fundamental decision to do something or not do something, I think more than often choosing the decision to do it is the right decision. Sometimes it's not, but more often you, the odds are with you, you know, should I do it or not do it, do it. I remember when I left, decided as part of the transaction, I was going to leave GE and my dad, you know, old school Europeans, like you don't leave a great company like GE. You know, it's like you have career there, right? Aren't you going to stay for 40 years? Or my dad, when he emigrated to the U.S., he worked for General Motors for his whole career. And um, I said, no, I think, uh, you know, the decision to, to, to do this versus not, that, that's the right decision. And I think it worked out okay. So, yeah. So. When you come to the fork of in the road, take it. Thank you. Uh, to, to quote uh, Yogi Berra. So, uh, exactly, exactly. Powerful message. Thank you so much. My pleasure. I hope this was uh, hope a bit useful, maybe even a bit entertaining. Thank you for listening. Aviv always encourages his clients to identify the one or two ideas they can move forward into action immediately. What will you capture and apply today? You can always begin with a small action and then build momentum over time. When you move forward from an idea to action, you get immediate ROI, return on the time you invested, and return of learning. And then the learning cycle builds the success propulsion. One more thing, you can reach Aviv directly by phone and email to discover how he can help you create a new future for your business and organization. Creating your new future can begin today.